Well, friends, enemies, people who have yet to declare their allegiance, welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. De jure means seatbelts. De jure means crash positions. It'll make sense in a while. Uh, yes, today we have decided to talk about animated adaptations for reasons we are not at liberty to divulge. We're not saying that it's absolutely vital to the survival of humanity that you listen to us talk about these Western-backed adaptations of animated installations, but it kind of is. So you're helping us not only save the world, but also educate yourself about such films as Masters of the Universe and The Giver. And really, that's a twofer. It's certainly a thing, Scott. those Those are certainly things. Yes, that was certainly a series of words that came out of my mouth. So, <laughs> in the interests of saving me from myself, why don't we just start by talking about Masters of the Universe? And that's Drew who's going to tell you about that. I can think of many reasons not to, but um, <laughs> but having watched it, I suppose I should just talk about it. Perhaps I can I can get it out of my head that way. The fate of humanity depends upon it. So no pressure then? No pressure. One of many 1980s cartoons designed primarily to sell toys, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was a very popular part of my early childhood, as it was for really a great many people of my generation. I liked the Skeletor one that had a little damage patch on its chest and then you hit it and it would swim around and you get like a chest barge across it. It was, it was good. I liked the toys. Yes, I, I had Battle Damage He-Man and Battle Damage Skeletor and they were <laughs> da bomb. Um, <laughs> So much so that I can even clearly remember buying them from, or having them bought for me from the Jolly Giant in Jordan Hill in Glasgow, <laughs> the, the giant toy store. Back when they ruled the earth, when, but now that the, 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 the Jeffrey the giraffe killed the Jolly Green Giant and then is now Committing dead suicide, itself. Yes. Yeah. Trag- um, tragic. I'm just, I'm just struck by a massive pang of nostalgia thinking about the Jolly Giant and um, <laughs> how I felt about toy shops as a child. Yeah. Whereas I was actually in a smith's toy shop a couple of weeks ago and i was just struck by how incredibly terrible and plasticky everything seemed yeah. and like i don't know if that's i don't see the appeal of toys anymore or it's because they're actually considerably more plasticky than they were when i was a kid but anyway there is a link here because this was based on a tv program designed to ship loads of plastic to kids <laughs> and as i said it was a well, a popular part of my early childhood. I remember them very, very clearly and fondly, and as did a great many people. No great surprise then that Mattel should seek to take this already purely commercial enterprise from the small screen to the big in order to milk even more money out of the parents of children <laughs> who, like me, loved the adventures of Man at Arms, Orco, Skeletor, and the Sorceress. They didn't half make some odd decisions in doing so, though. Firstly, there is the name. While the toy series was called Masters of the Universe, the cartoon series was called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, known to pretty much every child simply as He-Man. Yeah. It was about He-Man. It was called He-Man. The most memorable lyric of the theme tune, which I still remember perfectly, was humming all the way while writing this, um, (laughs) is He-Man. He man, and that's probably the one bit that everybody remembers about it, right? I don't even remember there being words other than he man. <laughs> to be honest with you, there may not have been. Yes. Um, <laughs> so naturally, what you should do when making a film from your successful cartoon is to drop the name He Man from the film entirely. 
Similarly, to ensure success, you should largely cut your iconic locations, such as Castle Grayskull, seen only fleetingly here from the outside as a decidedly crappy matte painting, and indeed move the action almost entirely from the fantastical alien world Eternia to areas around Los Angeles and Culver City. Children being (laughs) well known for being captivated by incredibly ordinary urban streets. (laughs) Next, drop many of the cartoon series' most recognisable characters, including, unforgivably, Cringer or Battle Cat, in whichever form you liked Mm. him in, and shift much of the attention from He-Man onto a couple of incredibly bland inhabitants of Earth who have no swords or magical powers of any sort at all. (laughs) Boy, these producers really know how to appeal to kids. (laughs) Many bad decisions were made, though they're not actually inexplicable, at least not if you notice the large Canon Films logo as the film starts. (laughs) This explains all, though doesn't excuse it of course. We are however, thankfully, spared the moralising coda that plagued the end of each cartoon episode. Um, I don't really want to to be honest, but I should probably at least mention the plot, so here goes. He-Man and his comrades are being overwhelmed by Skeletor's forces and are forced to leave Eternia. They do this by means of a cosmic key, which is basically a teleporter-like device. It malfunctions though. Um... <laughs> a teleporter device that looks like three tuning forks wrapped in tinfoil. <laughs> it's a very Star trek sort of prop, actually, isn't it? It's with its little re-spinning forks and things. Oh, actually... It's a very Star Trek device and a very red dwarfy kind of prop, actually. Yeah. If I, it, the way it moves, it kind of reminds me of Sonic chips, uh, chopsticks. <laughs> yeah, which is to say it's a kind of terrible prop. It's fortune and forks on a whisk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and some diamantes sticking around the outside. Uh, but anyway. Yes. So yes, this cosmic key malfunctions and they end up in the US in the mid-80s, but without the key. They then spend much of the film looking about for the key in, you know, the really exciting um, scenes of some streets and some alleys in Los Angeles. With the help of a couple of bland earthlings, while evading Skeletor's Lieutenant Evelyn, who is also looking for the key for reasons I can't recall and didn't care enough to look up. (laughs) They find the key and return to fight Skeletor, who turns into a golden disco, super glam final form Skeletor, <laughs> and there's a fight. Yeah, that that's the story. It's not much of a story, to be honest. Um, it's not much of a film, to be honest. The standout thing here, and really the only good thing, is Skeletor. Played, unrecognisably, by Frank Langell of all people, and undeniably hamstrung by not having Alan Oppenheimer's truly iconic Skeletor laugh, he's actually a pretty good villain. The Skeletor mask, while clearly being made of latex, is actually really quite good and stands up remarkably well in high definition. And the the variant of the film's finale, Bling Skeletor, is also frankly magnificent. (laughs) And possibly also appropriately fabulous, darling. (laughs) That's really it for the positives though. Most of the characters are forgettable at best and while He-Man himself wasn't the most interesting of characters, the cartoon version at least had bags more personality than Dolph Lundgren, probably the least charismatic of that crop of 80s muscle-bound action stars. A post credit scene features Skeletor saying I'll be back, 
which I take as a threat from the filmmakers rather than the character. Uh, but it certainly hasn't been so thus far, despite several people, including David S. Goyer, Mick G. Remember him? No, nor me. <laughs> Joe Cornish, and even, weirdly, John Woo, being associated with it over <laughs> the years. It's probably for the best, I fancy. As opposed to the film, which is definitely not for the best, and w- not watching it would be best for you. Yeah, I see it's currently slated as a remake for 2019, but it's been slated two years, <laughs> hence, for about the last 20 years. Yes, exactly. So we'll treat it when I come to it. Um, you know what? It turns out I quite like Master of the Universe, and I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> I will uh, say that I, um, it's, I, I remember massively disliking it. I didn't find it quite so objectionable this time. I was more just bored than actively disliking it. <laughs> which I guess is something. It's not entirely negative, I guess. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd always remembered hating this, but then mm. when I watched it again, I, I've either completely forgotten it, which is possible, or <laughs> I've never actually seen it. I think I might have just got the impression from watching like clips of it here and there, or whenever it was on telly and seen like five minutes here and there or something. But yeah, basically I, I only ever remembered this as being a answer to a trivia question about Courtney Cox really shows up as one of one of said uncharismatic earthlings that you were speaking about who's since of course gone on to be wildly uncharismatic in a number of works so <laughs> she's, she's certainly maintained that but you know and actually I do actually disagree a little bit I thought Skeletor was quite bad in this not because Frank Langell is bad but because the Skeletor I remember isn't this Skeletor because this Skeletor is actually something approaching a threat Whereas the skeleton I remember is this ridiculous person who talks in straight yes. accents. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I say it. Frank Gallagher was actually quite a good villain in this because Skeletor yeah. wasn't a villain in the cartoon. No, Skeletor so, was a laughing stock. Yeah, in terms of being that same character, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible job. In terms yeah. of actually being a good film villain, I actually quite liked Skeletor, actually, but he is not the Skeletor of the cartoons. Yeah. Um, yeah, because... <laughs> Skeletor of the cartoons was in that same sort of mould as characters like, I guess, Dick Dastardly. You know, they always yeah. had these grand schemes, but they always failed because of their yeah. own ineptitude. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, here he's actually a little bit more <laughs> together. Um, and and so's Evil Inn and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't really defend it. It's not actually any good, but I, I just didn't mind it when I was watching it. I think mainly it was saved for me in the end because... I think if you took the character that uh, James Tolkien's playing, the detective, who is just about as baffled by everything that's going on as we are, and he he's almost breaking the fourth wall for most of it, but not quite. But he, he treats it with such disdain that <laughs> that kind of saved it for me. It's like you've got an ally in this guy who's <laughs> who's uh, clearly not taking anything like, like as seriously as uh, Dolph Lundgren was, who was putting on his best I am serious <laughs> I just Face. like to think that James Tolkien had sort of stumbled out of Back to the Future into this and was just confused, <laughs> <laughs> hoping he would just give Evil in a tardy slip. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 I can't defend it. There's, <laughs> but I, I didn't hate it. Uh, I don't think I'd recommend anyone watch it. I mean, I think if you, I've, I've probably got just about enough nostalgia to see these uh, Berks and rubber masks wandering about and in. Uh, say Culver City, and I had enough remnants of nostalgia to kind of close by on that for me from the the uh, cartoon show that I 
remember quite so fondly as a kid. But uh, yeah, as a film, this is not really worth getting out to watch again in any great regard. I mean, I certainly, uh, I didn't hate the film, Scott. I, uh, I, was, I didn't really have that sort of strength of feeling about it because nothing's happening. And the, most yeah, of the cast is incredibly bland. There's a lot of stretches where it's just people running about between a school and a music shop for a while. Yeah. And yeah, lots, there's lots of sort of circular chases around various, the three or four sets that they'd built, you know, one of which being a back alley somewhere. So there's, there's, it's quite cheaply made. Uh, and it, that shows in a lot of what it's doing. Like I say, I don't... I, I I sort of enjoyed it. I think possibly ironically, but uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't recommend that anyone waste their time uh, digging this out. It's uh, currently sitting with an IMDb rating of five point four out of ten, which I think is maybe a bit generous for it. Uh, the Metacritic score of thirty five. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's certainly not worth looking at unless you're a a big fan of the the old cartoons and want to see what this was. It's but even then, for that sort of that recapturing of that nostalgia for just watch the, the cartoons like, yeah watch yeah. it but because um it doesn't really deliver on nostalgia but, i mean i'm probably glad in the end that orco wasn't in it um, and yeah. i don't know why because that would have been having a floating character that would have been ridiculously expensive if not yeah. impossible at the time but yeah orco was always kind of irritating but the, there are sort of some other characters that they could have had and yeah and they're even because of the characters that are there aren't like they were in the film and evil and it's probably the closest to yeah. her actual character but while i was writing my notes for this i'm like i was i almost wrote and the, the missed characters like beast man and stuff and then i thought no they're, I'm not they're, sure they're just they're there but useless yeah yeah but that's i i don't even i didn't even notice beast man in the film while mm. i was watching it. i only found out while i was writing notes and looking at screenshots again I'm like, oh yes they are that's the who reason, that guy was yeah. the reason i didn't recognize him is because in the the cartoon he's a very very distinctive red mm. you know it's like a very distinctively colored character so in the film they just made him kind of i assume background colored i assume he was painted by the same colors <laughs> because i didn't see him um just a sort of simple thing like that but why isn't this character bright red like <laughs> if you couldn't have that character there at all and, and it's there's so many just weird decisions like that why is so much of the plot focused on these two boring non-magical earthlings that don't do anything yes because they're cheaper to film (laughs) (laughs) i mean they didn't get an actual tiger and paint it green and put a saddle on it which hugely disappoints me it makes me that's if anything makes me angry it's that the lack of battle cap (laughs) i mean i can understand why that that's a bit of a logistical problem if not a budgetary one but (laughs) yes (laughs) i still consider myself very disappointed for that reason (laughs) so we're going to move on to something very very different yes scott tell us about a film that is different that is <laughs> that is so different i can't think of any way to link the two at all apart from that both maybe have people <laughs> masters of the universe was set in eternia and eternia could be described as an aeon maybe and this is aeon flux we've got it that doesn't really work but anyway I'm not sure if it's a fault with my age-addled brain or the memorability of this mid-2000s Charlie's Theron vehicle, Aeon Flux, uh, but I couldn't remember much about this film at all, and I suppose that's why I write things down. And looking back at my 2006 review of this film, I apparently hated it. 
2018's new and deteriorated version of the Scott Morris experience is a rather more mellow or perhaps just more exhausted beast, so <laughs> I, I just can't bring myself to muster quite the same levels of ire for this film. Um, although, it must be said that most of my earlier criticisms are, well, more or less true, so you can search on the old onelinercom site if you want to read that, but if you don't, uh, Aeon Vlux adapts the MTV animated series that I've seen a couple of episodes of, I believe, but I'm certainly by no means an expert in. Uh, I do know enough to know that it contains some pretty interesting stuff and would warrant more discussion than we'd be able to go into here to cover properly. But as this is a relatively loose adaptation, I suppose I'll leave that as an exercise for the interested. This takes a rather more mundane approach to the Aeon Flux world, which is an odd thing to say about a film with a woman who has hands for feet and Pete Bosselthwaite dressed as a burrito. It's... Set in a future that's seen humanity reduced to one walled city, Bregna, after a virus wipes out the rest of the world, where scientist Trevor Goodchild, played by Martin Koskis, uh, leads the ruling council of what seems on the surface to be a happy populace living in comfort, apart from the odd strange nightmares. However, any hint of rebellion is dealt with swiftly, with the techno-Gestapo disappearing anyone suspected of seditious leanings. Just like the current Spanish government! This is the fate that befell the sister of our titular hero, mistaken for Aeon after she joined the underground resistance, the Monicans, named after Courtney Cox's character in Friends. <laughs> Rising to become their top assassin, Aeon is eventually tasked with putting her deadly skills to use killing Trevor Goodchild. Meanwhile, Trevor has his own issues. His brother Sickboy, Johnny Lee Miller, is pushing at the edges of his authority in what's eventually revealed to be a coup attempt with him manipulating the resistance into getting rid of his too-respected-to-move-against brother. When presented with the opportunity, however, Aeon finds that she can't bring herself to kill him, given pause by flashes of memories that couldn't have happened. Well, turns out, and spoiler warning for a 13-year-old film, it did happen, just not in this lifetime. Uh, The virus that left humanity sterile uh, and the, the Council of Scientists decided that the best way forward was to keep this a secret and just keep implanting people with clones in a sort of holding pattern for 400 (laughs) years until the good child scientific dynasty could come up with a cure. It turns out that Trevor had, kind of, uh, and Sick Boy wasn't too keen on the expected loosening of the reins of power. So then, Aeon and Trevor must convince the Morricans of this truth, despite her currently being seen as a traitor, and go up against Sick Boy and his generic jackbooted thugs in order to save what's left of humanity from this tyranny. Now, director Karen Kusama claims that the studio recut this film against her wishes, saying it was too arty to, to succeed, and I'd like to have seen that because this version, pitched as a sci-fi action film, is pretty bad at the action side of that threat. It's not great at the sci-fi side of it either, Scott. <laughs> no. Uh, I, curiously, I probably appreciate this more than on its initial release, because at the very least, a lot of it isn't the pure CGI snooze fest that have come to define modern tentpole action films, but it's still quite below par. Sadly, as is much of the rest of the film. Uh, Again, I I can appreciate it more now than then, with this 2018 version of the Scott Morris experience being much more appreciative of any big-budget multiplex fodder that's less homogenous than the usual Disney, Marvel, Star Wars entertainment complex outing. And Aeon Flux is certainly different, and I think there are a few decent sci-fi ideas in here Mm -hmm. that I would love to have seen explored further. However, it doesn't. And uh, the rest of the film doesn't do itself any favours either. The, the scenes between Sokis and uh, Theron in particular is flat as a pancake, which really undermines the central premise of it. I really like Johnny Lee Miller in a lot of works, most re- recently Elementary, which is by a distance the most enjoyable modern twist on the Sherlock Holmes formula, but this is not one of those works. Is that the one with um, Lucy Liu? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so these days I'd consider this more a failed attempt at something interesting and resignedly move on to watching another generally indistinguishable comic book adaptation. And I just can't bring myself to be angry about it. And its current 9% Rotten Tomatoes score seems <laughs> unduly low. Uh, still, I'm certainly not recommending this to anyone apart from hardcore science fiction or catsuit enthusiasts. <laughs> Incidentally, where on earth did this genetic memories trope come from? It is silly. Stop it. Yes, um, <laughs> that's that. Uh, I don't have all that many notes written down for this, but but the genetic memory one is front and center, Scott. Um, yes. <laughs> was, uh, what I have written down is simply genetic memory, endlessly stupid. <laughs> it is not a thing it is not feasibly a thing it could never be a thing it makes no sense please stop it and i remember we we mentioned how completely boneheadedly idiotic it was in alien resurrection it's no yeah. different than this yeah yeah this film I mean, it didn't make me angry by any means i just don't think it's very good no i will say it, but there are there are bits of it i wanted to like it's i, I have never seen this before this was the first time i'd seen this and i've I know nothing about the TV series and MTV at all. I mean, it's, I, I entirely forgot it was an MTV thing. I was just, I was sure it was a Japanese thing, an anime. Mm. It felt like it should be actually, but it's it's not. And I think visually, it's kind of interesting because it, yes, it doesn't look like a lot of other stuff looks. Yeah. And and that's admirable. There's so many things just look the same. Mm. And there are, and there are other films that have had a, in like slightly similar kind of, look and feel to this uh things like equilibrium yeah um with christian bale that sort of thing and so th- there are like, interesting ideas like there's these kind of interesting gardens with apparently weaponized grass yeah <laughs> <laughs> kind of strange idea but so there are things like that but i kept finding myself getting taken out of it because whether it's a budget thing or and, and also it's because you don't see it often on film certainly in a sci-fi setting all of the, or nearly all of the architecture that you see, particularly from the outside, I and mean, a lot of the interior stuff too, looks like mid-century modern architecture. And that's because it's mid-century yeah, modern architecture. <laughs> and I'm really familiar with mid-century modern architecture. And it kind of takes me out every time because I'm like, this is supposed to be the future. And I'm thinking, my God, does that look like the 1950s and 1960s? You know? <laughs> so it sets it apart from a lot of other films. That's a good thing. But certainly, I, if you're familiar with that at all, it kind of takes you back out of it. Whereas, I mean, I suppose it's ambitious to try and make it look different. Whereas, say something like Robocop, which, you know, Detroit never looked uh, futuristic enough for the like futuristic Robocop, or the futuristic Detroit of Robocop they shot in Dallas. And it's all just largely skyscrapers and things. But it still kind of feels like a more believable future. Yeah. Rather than this kind of sort of really pristine looking thing that's going on here. Again, though, it looks different. That's generally to be admired. Um, and then also, as well as that, that mid century modern architecture, it's kind of undercut too by, and again, possibly a budget thing, but there's so many like, sequences where you just keep seeing breeze blocks and concrete walls and like, yeah. As soon as you see a breeze block and a staircase, it's like, well, it could be the back or the underground of any and every shopping mall, stadium, or sports centre in the world. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing just breaks any suspension of disbelief immediately. And that's unfortunately most of what we're talking about is just it's a litany of well, their complaints, I guess. But again, but there's 
there's almost like a seed of a good idea in each of these things, right? Yeah. There's like for from the very beginning, there's this massively failed world building because they say right humanity gets wiped out and there's only five million left and there's one city left. I'm like okay, but then there's no suggestion that anybody ever tried to colonize a new place or expand the city or leave or anything like that. And rather than that, because you find out why that is later. But rather than that be set up as a mystery, it's more just that this doesn't make any sense and it's bothering me. But and more like it feels like they didn't think it through. And then the city never feels sufficiently large. You only see basically, I think, one even vaguely wide shot of the city. And it's at night and you see a few lights in the distance. And so and but the city never feels large. And then so I'm just I'm thinking again, where's all the food coming from? Hmm. Whereas for something like, like Judge Dredd, for instance, and they say Mega City One, um, you know, there's only a few cities left, and there's Mega City One, and it's this huge yeah. city. But they quite clearly explain at the beginning; it extends for hundreds of miles. It's, that's yeah. how big the city is. Yeah, and, it's basically the old eastern seaboard of the US is Mega yeah. City One. So, and yeah. then, and there's enough establishing shots that you see this thing is huge, and you say, then I don't think about where the food comes from, because I understand. This thing is clearly huge. Yeah. The food will be grown in some farm part of somewhere that we're not seeing. But this immediately felt so restricted. I'm suddenly thinking about logistics. Like, yeah, this, this, this. So it's just like failed world, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a living, breathing world. Um, and that's also a constant part of any kind of pristine future like that. Yeah. Um, it never feels believable. It's like, yeah, why is why is it all dirt? <laughs> so there's like keeps on the like a wee idea that I think oh this will be good and oh no it doesn't do anything then obviously the endlessly stupid genetic memory but there's like the central conceit too that people are being cloned and that the that people are beginning to, to suspect and feel unhappy and yeah but there's absolutely no sense of that at all they keep banging on about how they're suffering. And they use that word, they say suffering and we're in anguish. And, <laughs> but not once, not once is that shown in any way, shape or form, mentally nor physically. Your <laughs> lives are perfect. You seem to be happy and well fed. You have nice houses and things. And yes, people are, are disappearing, mm. which is a kind of strange thing. But that seems to be really kind of minor and recent. And but the suggestions yeah. like, we're really suffering because we're not reproducing. Like, no. And that's where you get to the other interesting seeds of ideas too. There are interesting hints there of you know, ethical and existential questions of the nature of being and individuality and nature versus nurture and things. And, you know, if we are cloned, are we actually individuals? And, and obviously, yes, you are because you're a completely different being. But, you know, that's the it's like they're they're trying to explore that. And then genetic memory! And it's all rendered completely meaningless. <laughs> yeah, so it's I mean, it's least distinctive looking. It's just, I, I yes, you mentioned it, Scott, though, and, and acting-wise, there's, I, I don't know what is going on with the design of Pete Postlethwaite. It's really weird. But apparently, <laughs> are they suggesting he's the one person who hasn't been cloned and he has been alive for 400-odd years? Or <laughs> or just, because he keeps, again, it's probably just genetic memory because apparently they remember things. And he cloned Charlie Strun's character because he knew she was going to be important and in 400 years she wasn't. I don't get what, no. <laughs> Shush now, go away. Um, 
and there's absolutely no there's no chemistry between Martin Shokash and no, Charlie Strun. There's yeah. none at all. Each on their own is reasonably likable, I guess. And Martin Shokash is usually quite a a villainous character, and he's playing something a bit different than this, which is nice. You, you see him in there, and he's like, oh, he's probably going to have a bunch of people murdered. He's probably a Russian gangster or something, because that's usually the, the yeah. role he plays. And he's not like that. Uh, but yeah, there's no chemistry in him. A really strangely red-headed looking like Elizabeth I, Francis McDormand. <laughs> utterly squandered. Yeah. It's almost a frustrating film because there are some interesting things there, something that I'd like to see explored. And perhaps in the TV series they were. But in this, it's not. It's just, it's terrible. And also genetic memory can get into the sea. It, <laughs> it's a stupid idea. Yeah. And you don't even really know where it came from either. It's just weird. As our friends at the Exploding Helicopter podcast at Chopper Fireball on Twitter said, Aaron Flux, the film that finally gave us Pete Puzzlethwaite, dressed as an intergalactic spirit condom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that that really is the only memorable thing about the film. That uh, It was the one, one thing I did remember about this film all these years has been Pete Puzzlethwaite's just bizarre costume. <laughs> I don't know where that design came from, but it's... It's either ridiculous or la- laughably brilliant. I'm not quite sure how you describe it, but yeah, it's, it's certainly memorable. I'll give it that. It's not worth watching the film to see, though. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> find, find it still on still on the internet somewhere, and uh, yeah, that'll, that'll do you. I suppose there's nothing in the the film worth seeing. Yeah, but it's it's frustrating because it almost could have been. Like, I agree with what you're saying. There's a lot of things that just feel like you know there's there's really good ideas just hidden away somewhere, yeah. and it's buried by a, a number of just. Dull action sequences and actresses and actors and actresses not quite getting coming together on the page. It's, just, it's, it's all a bit frustrating. Uh, that, yeah, there's something much better in here that uh, if they chipped away at it a bit longer, or maybe if say if Karen Kazama had her her cut, not the studios, then maybe it would be a bit more interesting film. But uh, yeah, what what we've been left with is not really worth your time or attention. Sadly, not no. So uh, moving on then. Insert a seamless linking device here, which gets you to the Flintstones. Seamlessly linked, Scott. Well done. I am in awe. <laughs> I'm a professional, don't you know? I think it's fair to say that the majority of the films we're talking about in this episode are, or are based on, relatively obscure, niche, or largely forgotten properties. But one is based on perhaps one of the most famous animations of all time, being the first animated show to have a prime time slot in US TV three decades before The Simpsons made prime time, and something which is still a very rare thing, even more so on this side of the Atlantic. And that is, of course, as Scott mentioned, Hanna-Barbera's prehistoric sitcom The Flintstones. Set in the Stone Age, yet also the Jurassic and the Triassic and the Cambrian. <laughs> Look, what I'm saying is that I doubt the historical and temporal veracity of this cartoon with the domesticated dinosaurs talking animals and foot-powered cars. <laughs> Anyway, set in the Stone Age town of Bedrock, population 2,500, first with fire. (laughs) Look, is there really anyone who doesn't know the Flintstones? Is such a thing possible? I mean, at the very least, you're going to have seen those horrendously dated clips of Wilma, Fred and Barney selling Winston cigarettes to the families of America. (laughs) Apparently based on another sitcom, The Honeymooners. How accurate this is, I don't know because I know nothing about The Honeymooners and have only ever heard it referred to when people say that Sitcom X is just The Honeymooners in space slash in the Stone Age slash under the sea slash in a hospital slash with dolphins 
for pretty much every sitcom ever. <laughs> the Dolphins one's entirely in my head, but it's a, a real winner. I'm going to pitch it. I think there's a good market for a sitcom based on space dolphins in the Stone Age. <laughs> I think that would work. Registering this as prior art, should anybody get an <laughs> idea before we can pitch it to studio executive? As yes, as I say, based on the Honeymooners, the Flintstones is a pretty familiar format. Oafish, foolish, but non-malicious lunk with inexplicably loving wife, gets into scrapes and wacky misadventures, often with similarly foolish but slightly smarter neighbour stroke friend, rinse and repeat. At least the Flintstones, though, had quite a bit more variety than Hanna-Barbera's bafflingly enduring Scooby-Doo, with its one plot. Yoinks! The film doesn't stray from its TV-bound origin, instead largely stretching, or perhaps draping would be a better word, a plot that would seem at home in an episode across 90 minutes. Fred is set up as a good guy, as he has used his and Wilma's savings to help their friends and neighbours, the Rubbles, have enough money to adopt a child, and we see him as a popular blokey bloke at his job at the quarry. To try to repay him for his aid, his friend and neighbour Barney Ribble switches his test paper for a competitive job examination with Fred's, which sees Fred unexpectedly promoted to Vice President of Being a Patsy for Evil Kyle McLaughlin's embezzling scheme. <laughs> the money goes to Fred's head and he alienates his friends before realising that he's being set up and trying to rectify matters. I have seen this once before, round about when it was released, I don't think in a cinema, but it wouldn't have been long after, and I remember very much disliking it. And it would have been 1984 when I saw it was when it came out. This time around, I found I could appreciate much more about it. And I really wanted to like it more, but, well, I just couldn't. <laughs> what I really do appreciate, though, is the clear effort that went into making Bedrock seem like the cartoon. The producers didn't cheap out, and the buildings, cars and creatures really do look just like they did in the animation. To achieve this though, the sets and props had to be made from polystyrene, papier-mâché and fibreglass. And sadly, while they look exactly like the cartoon, they look like sets and props made from polystyrene, papier-mâché and fibreglass. The only things of substance in this film are the lithic names. It's a mixed bag acting-wise, with John Goodman doing about as good a job as I can imagine anyone doing with Fred, and Elizabeth Perkins is fine as Wilma. Rick Moranis even manages not to be his usual objectionable presence, you know, or Rick Moranis, as Barney. But Rosie O'Donnell as his wife, Betty? That's a questionable decision at best. It's largely downhill from there, though, with the biggest problem for me being the absolute waste of Kyle McLaughlin. Halle Berry as Fred's conniving secretary is, as she is in most films, there. And not a lot more can be said for her. Yes, and then there's Elizabeth Taylor as Wilma's mother, who I assume is stunt casting. But even 20 years ago, I'm sure to many people must have been who casting? Her performance here is a far cry from her roles in the likes of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I imagine to many in the audience, she was far less a once-great actress and more, you know, her, that... That lady with all the husbands who's friends with Michael Jackson who sells the perfume. Her, yeah, she's in that. But the biggest problem is the story, which is thin and simply boring and just not able to sustain 90 minutes of screen time. In the end, it's an incredible facsimile of the cartoon in which it is based, but The Flintstones has very little else to offer. A lot of effort for very little reward. 
this is another film I can't really defend, but I actually quite enjoyed. I don't know if I've seen this before. I thought I had, because, again, I had very strong memories of not liking it, but I don't think I've seen this before, so I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Maybe at some point I'm confusing it with (laughs) having seen its sequel, which has Stephen Baldwin in it, which I can imagine being a source of discomfort for most people. Uh, uh, Oh, it's better than it being Adam Baldwin. Yes. Um, I I enjoyed it. I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it looks very polystyrene-y, but it's not really the sort of thing I was trying to take seriously in the first place. You know, that doesn't really bother me, if you you know what I'm getting at, because it's not like I'm being taken out of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the gritty realism of this. Uh... <laughs> it wasn't the real. It's, it's see, if just there had been any sensation of weight to anything, I think I wouldn't even have thought about it. I would just thought, yes, it looks like the cartoon. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's just the fact that it's like, uh, it just looks like Captain Kirk's going to beam down and start fighting some sort of terrible rubber face monster at some point. I had that sort oh, of. Oh, that, that would have been awesome. <laughs> that would have been cool. Um, no, but uh, yeah. I, I just found myself laughing quite a lot throughout this. I'm, I'm, I find this funny. I think the the, the script is basically a, a 90 minute series of loosely linked puns, which to most people, most right thinking people would be a disaster. Uh, but it's just the sort of thing that I like. So. A lot of the puns are the best things. Like the, you know, some of them are a wee bit tortured, like Steven Spielrock and stuff, but there's like the Universal logo and. Um, <laughs> The Star Wars references outside the drive-through and stuff. There's, there's a lot of like wee touches like that that I really liked. Yeah, the story yeah. just just left me so cold. The story is weak. I don't think anyone's going to put up much of a defense on that. But I just liked most of the jokes. I liked the performances from most of the people. I've no complaints about really anyone in it. I even quite liked Halle Berry in this. Yeah, I think most of it just seemed to work. Um, in terms of just being a, a daft throwaway comedy, which this is with um, a fairly lavish production design set up on it, another film that has been widely hated on. But uh, yeah, though it did yeah, make three hundred fifty yeah. million dollars at the time. Um, yes, of a budget of forty-seven million or something, so it was successful at the time, um, commercially at least. Hmm. Uh, to be honest, I, I think it deserved it. I found this quite entertaining all the way throughout, and I don't really have any particular complaints about it. It's of course nowhere near a classic for the ages, it's not the funniest film you'll ever see, it's not the funniest film you'll see this week most likely, but I still think if you've got any appreciation for the old Flintstone stuff, it's worth giving this a look I, 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 no, I thoroughly enjoyed what this film offered it's not being particularly ambitious, it's just being a nicely designed and poorly plotted <laughs> but uh excuse to string a lot of the uh the puns together that the uh the animation did there are films in this episode i would very much warn people off of this isn't particularly one of them uh, i don't think i really would have thought about it much before, but i while i didn't enjoy the film i, I really appreciated the detail they went into because it felt yeah. it, i can't emphasize this enough it looks and feels just like the cartoon did um mm. The way the they've got like the the newspapers chiselled from sheets of slate or something, and just yeah. the, the feeling of the the slabs of rock so they make the top of the houses and the cars and stuff. It, it looked just like it, and even the fourth wall breaking in this film felt right. Cause, and the certainly I don't know if I can't remember from the cartoon if the characters did it, 
like the human characters, but certainly the animals did. Yeah, yeah. They, they would make references about, oh, what a terrible job and things like that. <laughs> it's a living. Yeah, that sort of thing. And so there was some of that. And it feels, it feels like the Flintstones. I just, and there are, I certainly laughed. Uh, I, I do remember laughing, not a lot, but I laughed. It's more just that, certainly by the end, I was like, just be over. The, the mm-hmm. story had completely lost me because the story is, is very basic. Yeah. And so I was just, I was tiring of it a bit by the end. But it's, uh, yeah, it's got interest. It, yeah, really, it wouldn't be one of the ones that would warn people off of in this episode. So, recommendation of the week. There we go. <laughs> oh, so recommendation of this current 30 seconds. If by recommendation, <laughs> you'd get one recommendation, one non non recommendation. <laughs> I don't not 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 hate it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's work out all the negatives in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh one of the more interesting ones, so I think. Uh in some ways successful. Exactly. You said you were largely okay with the acting. More just kinda wanted to see Kyle McLaughlin's just kind of being an evil villain a bit more. Just not on screen much. And I would have liked that more. Yeah, it's not something you would often say about Kyle McLaughlin, but he could have done with chewing a bit more scenery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I mean, I've liked Kyle McLaughlin a lot, but ever since Twin Peaks Return, I've had an even stronger appreciation for him because mm. as Dougie in Twin Peaks Return, which is basically just one a person who doesn't speak and is obsessed with coffee, he was amazing. And it's, it's a ludicrous <laughs> performance, and I loved it, and it's... It's one of my favourite characters ever now is Dougie in Twin Peaks. Um, so I would have liked to see him yeah, chew the scenery a bit more. Elizabeth Taylor could have been anybody yeah. in that role. But I, I really do struggle to see who you really could have got to play, certainly at that period, who you could have got to play Fred Flintstone that was any better than John Goodman. No, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I He's never a highlight, yeah. Yeah, so... But, Maybe another of those films I'm slightly talking myself around to liking a bit more than I thought I did as we discuss <laughs> it. But yes, it's still not not fantastic. But I, I would probably avoid Viva Lo- the Flintstones Viva Rock Viva Rock Vegas Viva Rock yeah Viva Rock Vegas, yes. the, which um which I'm annoyed by just by the name because it's a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> and you replaced John Goodman with Mark Addy. No thanks. So we rode with the family down the street through the courtesy of Fred's defeat but if if Fred could run fast enough perhaps he could he could race perhaps he could be a speed racer Scott yeah we should really prepare these ahead of time seamless <laughs> seamless we uh, are yes. true professionals speed racer I'd let this one sail by me on its initial 2008 release Lewakowski's conclusions to the Matrix films not being quite everything that was hoped for, and also with me having neither seen nor heard of Speed Racer in my puff. Nor me. It's not just me then, that's good. Yes. This left this Japan an adaptation very much notly anticipated. But on first viewing then, I'm actually quite surprised to find that this was a total box office flop, as I think there's a lot to appreciate in here. You may disagree. 18-year-old speed racer Emil Hirsch has overcome the death of his brother Rex Racer in the dangerous Casa Crystal 5000 rally to start to carve a name for himself, taking the family's tiny racing team back to the top to the delight of Speed's mother and father, played by Susan Sarandon and, oh, John Goodman. Good to see you again. This draws the attention of the big guns of the racing world, such as 
the seemingly avuncular E.P. Arnold Royalton, played by Roger Allen, who is the CEO of Royalton Industries, who wants to sign Speed to his team. While tempted by the offer and the well-resourced team, Speed remains loyal to his family, at which point the mask slips and the reality of the corrupt world of racing is revealed to Speed. At the risk of shortcutting a whole bunch of plot, Speed must join forces with the mysterious Racer X and the harmoniously named Inspector Detector to bring these corrupt forces down and return the sport to purity, mainly through the medium of bonkers CG race sequences. There's a few more twists and turns to maintain interest, of course, but the draw here is at least supposed to be the racing and not the plot. I suppose the one-word summary of this would be energetic? Perhaps closely followed by exhausting and puzzling. It has a quite well-defined world and primary coloured aesthetic that's almost overwhelming at points, which I'm sure is the intent, along with the action scenes that come close to being defined as an assault. It's so relentless that you never stop to question why, for instance, Speed's younger brother's best friend is a chimp. Because chimps are awesome, Scott. Well, obviously. Uh, I guess I can see why it didn't have universal appeal, I'm not sure if its stylings are directly lifted from the animated series or are taken to extremes here, but it's certainly vastly unlike other tentpole releases and the polar opposite of the grimdark stylings of the Bukowski's previous works like The Matrix and Dial V for Vionetta, their watermark ice cream delivery-based film. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm not saying that's the most obscure and parochial joke that I've written in the last couple of months, but... Clearly this is aimed at a much younger audience than any of the other films, and as a grumpy old bastard, I can't really comment on how successfully it plays that demo, but it seems like it ought to be entertaining. I mean, certainly I was entertained, and I suppose my mental age is about six, so maybe it was aimed at me after all. Um, it, it's briskly paced, brightly coloured, and overwhelmingly enthusiastic. I can't imagine what watching this in 3D must have been like. My eyeballs would have melted. Um, I, I don't have much else to say about Speed Racer, other than to say it's pretty well acted where it needs to be, as you might expect from Goodman, Sarandon, Alum and all that, and the rest of a pretty decent cast. It's perhaps all just a bit too much, but there's room for wanton excess in cinema, and I think this is well worth looking at if you have avoided it up until now. Allow me to correct you. <laughs> <laughs> at least allow me to disagree. Yeah, I remember this coming out at the time, and... I think maybe at the time I learned that it was based on a an anime that I'd never heard of and then I promptly mm-hmm. forgot that and it largely the, the existence of this film until I'm the Host podcast covered it a couple of months ago. And yes. I remembered, it. oh yes, and that was an anime. Like, I, mean, I was meant to watch that, but just clearly not to. If I forgot about it, I didn't always mean to watch it, but I think I was intrigued <laughs> enough by the idea. I've never heard of Speed Racer, never come across my radar at all. I had some anticipation for watching this. The Wachowskis are at least visually interesting. And while a lot of the films are quite astonishingly terrible, I'm looking at you, Matrix sequels, uh, <laughs> they do tend to be ambitious, and I kind of like that. I mean, yeah. Jupiter Ascending is a terrible film, but they, boy, did they try to do something different. And I like that. And I actually kind of like Cloud Atlas. Um, yeah, I've not seen Jupiter Ascending, but I, I appreciate a lot of Cloud Atlas. Yeah. It, it really does reach for something almost ungraspable when you when you see the source materials. Like there's there's no way you could possibly make a film out of this, but they've tried and made a pretty decent fist at it. Yeah, so it's, I am 
I am glad they exist and I like that they do things like that. So I had some anticipation for a speed racer. It just unfortunately didn't do a lot for me. All those things you're saying about it being really energetic and hard to follow and things, and I like, no, I didn't feel that at all. It's no, um, <laughs> it's it's a massively oversaturated film, which is a look I don't particularly care for. But I don't. It's not. I'm not saying it as a negative. It's I don't particularly care for it. But it fits with the aesthetic. It fits with it being based on that cartoon and things. So and that works. So that's that's a style choice, and it? it's okay. It's just I don't particularly like it. But the the problem for me, well, one of many was the. For a film based on racing, it doesn't appear to have anything to do with racing or to in any way understand racing. And being a big fan of motor racing, this is a problem. <laughs> uh, and I know it's, and I'm going to get really, really geeky and nerdy and nitpicky here, but um, I like motor racing a lot. So a film based on motor racing, it doesn't appear to understand it. It's going to bother me. Okay. I mean, it's not really based on motor racing. Well, no, it's not. Um, <laughs> it's based on Mario Kart. <laughs> yes. It's, if, if you define that as racing, then okay. Yes, it's much closer to Mario Kart than anything else. Just because it. But it's because of that, a lot of the things just didn't make a lot of sense to me, and like, and, and I was I couldn't just like not think about them, um, just like I couldn't not think about the fact that at one point, Speed Racer fixes a car using the Force. <laughs> it's like I just had flashbacks to the Pod Race in Episode One of Star Wars. Like, and talking of Speed Racer, <laughs> before I, I go back to my original point. He's played by Emil Hirsch, who is probably best known to most people as Emil Who. Um, was do you remember him in the Sean Penn directed Into the Wild? N- no, of course you don't. N- not that he was bad, just that he was barely anything and, and everything I know I've seen him in. He's barely been, he's just, he is a person that is there. Um, he's probably a jolly fine chap in real life, but in film he's, he, he's a credit on the screen, yes, but, uh, <laughs> Um, again, this is where I get really nerdy and nitpicky, but for film based on racing, and then it, they have a whole plot point about not knowing whether a car has been tampered with, um, whether people have been cheating, and there's like probably no implementation of rules at all, no enforcement of rules. And I'm like, yeah, in Formula One, they can literally tell if a car is two millimeters too wide, and they can't tell if somebody blew up a car in this basically. Like, but they, the whole point is that the racing system is wildly corrupt, and this is why they're getting away with it. Yeah, but I mean that—that's the central <laughs> tenet of the film, Drew. Yeah, but that's beyond corruption. It's, it's saying like they can't tell. It's like there's no proof of it. And like, like mm. yeah, it seems. I know it's based on a Japanese animation, but it seems like um, outside of oval racing, Americans have no concept of what racing is, and they certainly don't know what a rally is. And so again, I, I know it's partly as a motorsports fan that that stuff bothers me, but it bothers me a lot. So I kind of I can't really get into it. And then you have the character motivations don't make sense. Most people don't seem to have any real motivation for doing what they're doing, like the Cannonball Taylor, who seems to hate Speed Racer and is quite willing to murder him because, because, because. And they have things like the characters saying, oh, they wouldn't want to to join a top team. Well, why wouldn't a driver want to join a top team? Because there's no other way to win in motorsport unless you're in the top team, unless you're in something like stock car. And they've clearly demonstrated this isn't stock car, that everybody has their own things, um, including weapon systems and things. Yeah, I just, I just didn't get on with the film. Uh, the 
the races are really kind of flashy and they are in a very sort of Mario Kart style. But maybe it, it's decades of playing Wipeout, but the, the speed didn't work for me. I was, like, was going to say there's no sense of speed. That's not right. There's no sense of momentum. Nothing feels like it has any weight. It's just moving fast, but it never feels like it has any weight. And it's, so for that, I just I can't get invested in the races. They don't feel... I, I know real is not particularly sensible word to use, but they don't feel like they have any gravity to them, literally. And then there's only one Grand Prix. One Grand Prix? Formula 1 has 21 this year. What is this? What's this one Grand Prix nonsense? I don't know. I, I just couldn't get into it. I, just, I didn't buy the world. I didn't buy any of the character motivations. And some of the effects are really weird. Some truly awful rear projection and green screen that I know, again, just to mention, because I listened to their episode again this afternoon, but, and I'm the host, I think Blake was talking about that it feels like they've just appeared from a closet at some point, there's no sense of depth, but I don't know, I think, and this looks like they hadn't got a handle on doing this, but the Wachowski stuff is generally really, really good visually, like the effects and stuff, they generally have a handle on even if the story's terrible. Um, and so I assumed it was deliberate and it looks really weird because inside inside the house it just looks like a normal house and everything looks normal then as soon as they step outside everything's almost 2D and it's a really strange visual look so after that happens things just start really bothering me Like um, there are two supposedly Japanese siblings these two Japanese siblings played by a Korean and a Chinese person because because, well, of course, they all look the same to us Westerners, right? And that just offended me. Uh, because Han Chinese and Japanese don't look even vaguely alike. It's like... Yes, actually, I'm going to come back to that later. And this is something I'm going to bang on about later. It's just... I don't know. I didn't like it. I didn't hate it. There were parts of it I enjoyed. I just thought it was a bit of a disappointing film. And if you want to watch an entertaining but not dramatic film about racing, I suggest you just go back two years before this and watch Talladega Nights instead, which instead of a chimp, has a cougar by the name of Karen and is therefore awesome. You're such a colossal dork <laughs> about racing. And um, yeah, if you... If, but I'm glad you glad you recommended the documentary Talladega Nights, <laughs> Nights there. That's a yeah, much more realistic enterprise <laughs> than Speed Racer. Mm. Um, no, I like Speed Racer, so nah. Mm. So, uh, one day I will have to go and visit the Maltese ice caves in that um, relatively flat, warm Mediterranean island. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, if you want a more in-depth look at this, then yeah, why not go back and take a look at the uh, podcast from uh, I'm the Host from a couple of months back? Yeah, it's a couple of months ago, I think, that. yeah. Yeah who will go into it in more depth than you require. Because they, because they are crazy people, they're considerably more enthusiastic about this film than I am. <laughs> Such a dork. Thank you. Anyway. Sorry, Um. yes, next <laughs> <laughs> Talking of dorks, Josie and the Pussycats. That's a link, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you just rendered me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> if you just agree, we can move on to the next thing. <laughs> it's fine. Yes, that, that that is a link that makes sense. Maybe you'll fix that and post somewhere, I don't know. <laughs> based on a short-running 1970s Hanna-Barbera cartoon, itself based on a strip in Archie comics, neither of which I had heard of until after the first time I watched this, Josie and the Pussycats is the story of an all-female band finding literal overnight fame, 
and the fallout of the stresses and strains this puts on their friendship. That reasonably straightforward premise is given a twist by the reason for the overnight success. When the uber-popular Backstreet Boys-like band Du Jour have an accident while shortly after questioning their producer Wyatt, Alan Cumming, about the unusual backing track on the latest single, Wyatt and his boss Fiona, Parker Posey, must quickly find a new musical sensation to sell to the masses. And why? Well, it's a well-known fact, Sonny Jim, that there's a secret society of the five wealthiest people in the world, known as the Pentavrit, who run everything in the world, including the newspapers, and meet triannually at a secret country mansion in Colorado known as The Meadows. So who's in this Pentavrit? The Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, and Mega Record CEO Fiona. With her wee beady eyes? <laughs> Unfortunately, I find Parker Posey too attractive to describe her as having wee beady eyes. I did try to work that out earlier. Does she make you crave chicken fortnightly? I'm not sure where you're going with this reference, to be honest. So, that's why I stopped. I didn't follow on through all of, the, <laughs> all of that quote. So I did stop there. Um, <laughs> Yeah. The band's music is impregnated with subliminal messages urging consumption and promoting new trends, and Fiona's plan will culminate in a massive, globally streamed concert by the Pussycats, which will unconsciously affect the brains of huge swathes of the world's youth with Fiona's sinister agenda. Josie and the Pussycats is very knowing and even fourth wall breaking, with lines like Missy Piles Alexandra's I'm here because I was in a comic book when asked why she's with the band as they travel. A lot of it is in fact very arch and could quite easily um, fail, but for me it really worked, including its comments on product placement and consumption, like a movie-long extension of that scene in Wayne's World with the Pepsi and Reebok. Uh, I to acting, I guess. Uh, I like Parker Posey so much in Christopher Guest's work, um, so I'm a little disappointed that she isn't utilised more, as hers is a fairly minor character. But it is the pussycats that are the heart of the thing, and I like them quite a lot. Tara Reid, here at the crest of the small wave she rode from The Big Lebowski to American Pie in its first sequel, before sinking to appearances in five, five Sharknado films, has been much maligned. But she's an engagingly likeable presence as the detached but harmless drummer Melody, and if you aren't at least a little tickled by her dropping her sponge every time she claps along to the song she's singing in the shower, you're probably some kind of monster. <laughs> Rachel Lee Cook is probably the most forgettable of the three, odd considering that she plays Josie, the ostensible star, but she is quite a pleasant presence. I think perhaps she just suffers from not being particularly believable when called upon to become bitchy and evil for a while, still seeming too much like the bubbly and chipper character that she is for the bulk of the film. The third member of the band is Valerie, played by a then mostly unknown Rosario Dawson. All I will say is that I largely approve of all things Rosario Dawson, and <laughs> so it is here. This is a film about a band, and though I'm not a big pop guy, there are some fun, catchy and energetic songs woven throughout the film that keep things moving along nicely, and I remain more amused by Du Jour's backdoor lover than a grown man ought to be. <laughs> Josie and Pussycats is a slight thing to be sure, but it's good-natured, fun and funny, and I was very happy to revisit it. It is also, by quite some margin, the most enjoyable thing I watched for this podcast, particularly in that it was a thing that I watched for this podcast that I actually enjoyed. <laughs> yes, uh, again, it is the most enjoyable film in this uh, for me as well. Um, 
I'm glad to hear a that. Fil- a film that does not acknowledge the existence of a fourth wall uh, is always a pleasure to see um, and just to make my wife happy. Alan Cummings in this and I quite liked him in the role. Uh, yeah, I actually, is- I, I do find, I, I, we're on the same page I think, Scott, that we don't particularly care for Alan Cummings, but he's he's fine in this. He's quite likeable, mm-hmm. actually. Yes. Don't really have anything to add. It's a film that I think could have worked harder on its entendres to make them double entendres rather than just straightforward <laughs> sex references. Um, but aside from that, uh, yeah, it's just really funny and I like all the characters in it and it's acted well enough for what it needs to be and the plot's obviously incredibly far-fetched but it works for what it needs to do. It's like a comedy version of They Live Without the the Death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a few... A few less uh, scenes of <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper beating up someone in an alley for like half an hour. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, really enjoy it. I guess I watched it. I don't think I saw this in the cinema, but I saw it a few years after when it was out in home formats, I guess, and I enjoyed it then. Not really thought about it much in, in the intervening time until now, but uh, yes, watched it again. Still really enjoyed it. It's still pretty funny. Uh, yeah, definitely recommended to anyone. It's, uh, it's, strange when you, you see where I don't have a lot of familiarity with any of the source material but I have seen some of the uh, Riverdale uh, Netflix show it's shown up on Netflix over here and one of the stations over in America uh, which has taken the Archie comic which I understand always been a fairly light-hearted thing and turned it into a really dark brooding strange show which uh, Josie and the Pussycats kind of show up on occasionally <laughs> and it's it's just weird when you compare it to this which is as lightweight and throwaway as you could possibly imagine um, but yes, I and I much prefer this treatment of it than the Riverdale one. Uh, very funny, and I think would give anyone a laugh unless they are an inhuman monster. And we know there is no inhuman monster that listens to this podcast. It's been proven with science. <laughs> yes. Okay, so... Um... Don't even try. <laughs> Just go straight into <laughs> but, but talking of things proven with science... Um... <laughs> there's a strong scientific basis for for the next film because it's got a scientist in it who appears to be doing lots of real science if I just say yes can we move on <laughs> yes the Giver <laughs> <laughs> so the Giver in its original animated form formed part of the wave of edgy Japanese animation that washed over Britain post Akira that managed to gain a bit of a cultural foothold or at least amongst the spotty teenage geek demographic that I was doomed to at the time. Uh, for those keeping track, I've now progressed to spotty, decrepit, old geek. That series, along with a few, in retrospect, equally unworthy contenders like Urtsukadoji, focused more on providing the mutant body horror and violence aspects that someone somewhere must have decided was what made Akira successful, and <laughs> came out on appallingly dubbed to VHS to mild success here, and I presume elsewhere, enough to warrant this 1991 US adaptation. Hey, it's Mark Hamill in a film where he's not playing famous Jedi Lucas Airbender. Here he's CIA agent Max Reed trying to figure out who murdered Dr. Tetsu Sagawa. Spoiler warning, it was agents of the shadowy Kronos Corporation displeased with his attempts to defect with the dangerous alien device, the Giver. The goons sent to kill him failed to recover the unit, however, and it winds up in the hands of martial arts students Sean Barker, played by Jack Armstrong, 
boyfriend to Dr. Sagawa's daughter, Mizuki, played by Vivian Wu. Now, this device turns out to be a biomechanical power suit that implants itself into Sean, allowing him access to greatly leveled up punching and kicking abilities. He'll soon be needing that, as the Kronos Corporation send their apparently powerful elite mutant soldiers, the Zoonoids, to recapture the Giver unit, taking Mitsuki as leverage. The Zoonoids, often disturbingly designed monsters in the animated series, are here played by some Berks and rubber suits. And so it goes, with Sean forced to take on the entirety of the Kronos Corporation while struggling to understand just what kind of monster he has become. Now, this sounds almost like it could be interesting, so let me assure you, it is not. <laughs> I am perhaps expecting too much from a film directed by someone happy to call himself Screaming Mad George. I'll accept that kind of frivolity from someone standing for Parliament, perhaps, but not from a director hoping to capture the essence of the classic source material. I say classic, I suppose dreadful is a more accurate term, so I take it back. Georgie Boy, or Joji Tani, as his mother might call him, has done all that could be expected, aided by co-director The Wang, who went on to direct the less terrible, but still terrible, sequel. Now, there wasn't a lot of positives to take from the animated show, to be fair, but its creature design was at least striking, and to a degree that's happened here, but I think Masters of the Universe wore out my Power Rangers man in rubber suit tolerance for this episode, <laughs> and I really was not feeling the action sequences at all here. Uh, there's a bit too much of a focus on slapstick comedy, which isn't really a common element of body horror, for I trust fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, while the Giver suit is to be fair much better designed and executed than the poor bastard he's fighting, there is one critical problem with it, that being the numpty inside it, uh, quite how someone so charismaless wound up being cast in the lead role here is a mystery, yeah. and he stands out as being particularly bad in a cast that's competing quite strongly for the position of least good. <laughs> yes, if a person managed to have a slightly less charisma than the rubber suit he's wearing. <laughs> uh, yeah, but bad acting, bad action, a contrived plot, little to no fun whatsoever. I don't think there's much else to add here. This film is, and let's be scrupulously fair, Hot garbage. Avoid. <laughs> yes. um, I know I've watched The Giver. I remember um, born videos from a friend Grant at high school. Um, yeah. And I think I must have enjoyed it at the time, because I know I watched several episodes, but I remember sawing all about it, apart from, for some reason, the, the phrase um, Attack of the Hyperzoonoids Team 5 was <laughs> always lodged in my head, and I think it's there for all time. I, I don't even know what it means, but... Um, <laughs> It's the title of the fourth episode of the series. I'm not saying you can find it on YouTube, uh, but you can certainly find it on YouTube. <laughs> um, yes, it was in retrospect a terrible show because I, I watched a few of them just before uh, doing this. But yeah, at the time, I quite liked them. But I guess I didn't know better. <laughs> I was only thirteen. Sorry, <laughs> but, but uh, yes, it's, it was quite a dreadful show in retrospect, and that's carried through into this adaptation. Yeah, I, I did. Flirt with the idea of looking at a couple of episodes to see how it compared to see if I remembered it. But I watched no. the film first and that um, completely <laughs> destroyed any enthusiasm I had for that particular idea. Yes. It's, um, oh crikey, it is a bad film. It is. I don't know, with things like the silly men in rubber suits weren't quite as awful as I expected them to be. They, they could have been worse. I think because. Some, by no means all, especially not the strange, shrunken-headed elephant character. Um, <laughs> but some of the faces were at least... <laughs> some of the uh, 
Yet the faces were at least reasonably detailed. A couple of them sort of were vaguely reminiscent of the Predator. And so there was some detail in some of the faces in it, so it didn't look quite as awful as it might have looked. Yeah, it don't, like, to be fair, those characters, like, they're well-executed rubber suits, but they're sort of well-executed almost comedy rubber suits yeah. in, a, in, a, in a film that's trying desperately to be taken seriously. And yeah, that doesn't work. It's, it's all over the place totally because there, there's bits where people are really straight up murdered and yes. then um, where sexual assault is at least being threatened by the, the leader of the Kronos Corporation, the leader of the Zoonoids and mm. so Lord. Um, and then you have things like the, it always becomes the main Zoonoid, the kind of fish-faced one um, yes. with like yeah, doing a lot of kind of slapstick stuff, and then you have the one of the Zonoids who turns into his monster version, and is still wearing the collar and tie, and the glasses, <laughs> and it's the most ridiculous looking thing. <laughs> and yeah, then you get all this weird tonal stuff, and like so, it starts off with the characters, the women's um, father being murdered, and then. There's some kind of strange misunderstanding plot of um, the the guy. Is it Sam? I've forgotten his name because he's he barely, he's kind of entirely washed off him because he has so little charisma <laughs> of him misunderstanding why Mark Hamill's at her apartment because he fancies her and she he thinks she fancies him and stuff. And then, then they start, they get together in the apartment and she, and she tells him um, what has happened and she's all upset. Then like two minutes later, He's acting irritated because a visitor has interrupted him getting close with the daughter. <laughs> then the two of them are acting all coy and flirty. Like, literally, as I said, I don't even think it's two minutes, <laughs> literally 30 seconds after she has just told him, my father was murdered last night. <laughs> the f***? What's wrong with you people? Um, and then, yeah, he is such a bad actor and it doesn't help. Everything's so badly scripted and, and directed to that, that really terrible badly written opening text which doesn't actually make any sense doesn't explain <laughs> anything and there's just huge plot holes in the opening text and like so the first 10 seconds there's plot holes that make no sense because <laughs> um, it talks about amongst the alien remains the alien remains were never mentioned yeah. um, what, what alien remains you just invent, within a paragraph you've introduced alien remains that you've never mentioned before but you're talking about it as if they're well established um, <laughs> and it talks about uh, how Humans were an alien experiment, but then also says the, the humans were humans and the alien experiment was the zone now. So make up your mind which is it. Yes. <laughs> um, and then there's this horribly awkward part um, to like, there's a fight in an alleyway, and one of the zoonoids says to the guy, says, You're going down. Then I, I, it's 30 seconds, maybe even a minute later, after some action and some more dialogue from the original speaker. And then a half-hearted um, thing from the guy of, no, you're going down. But you know, that's a bad <laughs> enough um, comeback immediately, not a minute later. <laughs> no, you are the one who will be doing the dying today. Yes. And yeah, I said I would come back to this. This is all about because everything's offensive about this film. The Japanese scientist is played by a Korean. His Japanese daughter is played by a Chinese. Japanese people and Chinese people look very different. And I was about to say, you wouldn't get a Slav to play a Spaniard, for example. But then I just remembered that Exploding Helicopter recently covered a film in which a Cuban was cast to play a Georgian. 
so maybe you would. Jeebus, <laughs> though, but, you know, Asian people don't all look alike, no matter what Hollywood may think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely <laughs> show. Avoid it like the plague. <laughs> yeah, so I guess on that bombshell, we'll leave you. We'll leave you. Not, not a tremendous episode for recommendations, I guess, from where you're sitting. Uh, there's some here I don't mind so much, but yeah. I think, for me, there are certainly some positives in the Flintstones, and I really like Joe Sneed Pussycats. That's basically mm. it for me. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree for a lot of it, certainly. I mean, I think if you take one thing away from this podcast, it's don't watch The Giver. <laughs> uh, that's really the one thing I want to get across here. It does have a sequel, The Giver Dark Hero, which is... Perhaps only interesting because it replaces this non-entity in the lead role with the uh, with uh, David Hater, who was probably best known to most people as the voice of Solid Snake in all the Metal Gear Solid uh, games for the last decade until they replaced them with uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, apart from the one when he was Kiefer Sutherland uh, for some reason. <laughs> yes, and, and also, curiously, uh, the, the screenplay writer for The Watchmen. Okay, odd. But uh, yes, the, the, that film is slightly better, but still garbage. So yes, don't watch that either. I watched them both and I regret my decisions entirely. <laughs> Listen, and because I didn't choose this film, I also regret Scott's decisions entirely. <laughs> so yes, until next time, you know, just, just, just try and stay alive, I guess. Take care of yourself and each other. If you want to get into contact with us, you can certainly do so. Uh, podcast at theonelinerbook.com on the emails, or search for us on Twitter or Facebook or Grinder, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I've been Scott Morris. Drew Davendale has been Drew Davendale. I can't deny it. And we'll see you in a few days. Bye.